Hey everybody, I've got a really special episode for you this week. I am joined by Craig Camp from Troon Vineyards. He is a winemaker. He is a wine seller. He has 30 years plus experience in the wine industry, and he is also an expert in biodynamic wine. I I was blown away by how good of a conversation this was. Uh, he was really interesting. He had a lot to share. I hope you all enjoy it as much as I enjoyed conducting the interview. Wine can be really confusing. When you're starting out, it's hard to tell high-quality wine from a bottle of Plunk. It can also get really expensive. Boy, have I found that out lately by looking at my bank statements. I did a lot of research to find a better way to buy quality wine without breaking the bank, and that's how I discovered an awesome website called Last Bottle Wines. Last Bottle Wines has fostered personal relationships with wineries across the world and offer one bottle of high-quality wine a day at 30 to 70% off. When the bottle is gone, it's gone. New day, New bottle, new savings. I recently ordered a Spanish Tempranillo. This wine normally retails for $74, and I got it from Last Bottle Wines for only 32 bucks. It's not a wine club, so there's no fees. Shipping is affordable and can even be free. You know Mason and I are always after the best wines at the best price. We want you to enjoy the same deal. That's why we got you this special offer. Some of our listeners have already taken advantage of the deal and are loving the experience. All you need to do is go to lastbottlewines.com slash invite slash tasting anarchy to get $10 off your first purchase while helping your favorite Wine and Liberty podcast. That's lastbottlewines.com slash invite slash tasting anarchy to get $10 off a delicious bottle of wine at 30 to 70% off. Tasting Anarchy, your wine and liberty podcast. Join Mason and Jake each week as they try new wines and discover how much government is in your drink. You're one of the few winemakers that we've interviewed. We, we've had one more who's actually also from Oregon, from Portland, uh-huh. and he's got a, a winery in the city. And I I don't remember how I came across you on Twitter, but I was just you know reading your little your you know, a little blurb on Twitter that says sharing our voyage into biodynamics. And I was like, Ooh, this is the guy I want to talk to. Okay. <laughs> Cause we, okay, I'll, I'll try to do that for you. <laughs> All right. Well, I mean, I have already pressed record, so, uh, we are not live, but we're recording now. So, okay. Uh, let's go ahead and get into it. Sounds great. Sounds great. All right. Uh, well, you know, th- I've already mentioned it. The main reason I wanted to have you on tasting anarchy was to talk about biodynamic wine, but I went over to your blog, which is winecampblog.com, and went over to the about section. And you actually have a really long tenure in wine in general, from uh, not just making wine, but also selling wine, and and you were part of the import business and everything like that. You want to tell the listeners a little bit of ha- about how you got into wine and uh, basically your history. I mean, it's a long history, but it's an interesting story. Uh, yes, I have been doing it for a long time. Uh, actually, what what probably started me on it was uh, when I was in college, I uh, spent a, uh, a semester studying, quote unquote, in Europe, and uh, I, I, you know, I was in I was in Salzburg, Austria, on this exchange program, and then the, the summer following. I just felt, well, well, let's go travel around Europe. So I started hitchhiking around Europe like you did in those days. Yeah. And, 
I got to France and uh, oh well, in France I should drink wine. I don't think I'd ever had a glass of wine in my life. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, you know, it was fun. I enjoyed it. And then I came back to the United States feeling quite sophisticated. And then uh, went to a, a wine shop and realized I didn't know a thing. And so I bought uh, the Signet Book of Wine, which was kind of the, the book at the time, and uh, just totally uh, uh, entranced me. And, I ended up uh, leaving a career in journalism and uh, becoming part of a startup wine importer in uh, 79, late 79. And uh, we built that up building, you know, it was in Chicago. We built mm -hmm. uh, importing the state wines first from Burgundy and then Italy and then uh, interesting new estates from California and Oregon. And uh, I sold that after 20 years and then went to Italy and kind of immersed myself in winemaking and then came out to the uh, West Coast and worked in the Willamette Valley for a while. Then I was in Napa for about a decade and then uh, came uh, to the Applegate Valley, which I'd had on my radar for a long time. Now Applegate Valley that is is that a that's a is that a subregion of another one or is that its own region? That is a AVA. Okay. Uh it's uh, right next to the Rogue Valley. Okay. So we're about an hour from the California border. Uh it's a un very unique area cuz we're uh we're up in the mountains. We're not like the Willamette Valley. Yeah. We're, in the, we're in the Siskiyou Mountains like the valley floor here is about 1400 feet and uh the mountains here were uh jammed into the coast by uh, tectonic plate movements, so we're not mm -hmm. volcanic. So we have this combination of uh, decomposed granite okay. uh, with, with sedimentary ocean and river soil, so a very unique area. Okay. Uh, I, mean, I think I've actually driven through there a few times because ah, I used okay. to live in Sacramento, and we would drive up to Seattle every year. Yes, that's, and that's, uh, you would come through here. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, all, we, always, we always really like to go camping in southern Oregon on our way yeah. up. Because it's beautiful. It's just a, it's just a beautiful region, and it's, the weather's usually pretty nice. It smells yes. really nice. It's just a great, a really great place. So now you you are now in Applegate Valley. What do you see as like differences between working in Southern Oregon and and working in Napa and Willamette Valley? Actually, even well, it's you get a, It's a very unique ripening cycle here, mm -hmm. and it's very distinct from the area. Obviously, Willamette Valley is ideal for Pinot Noir, Chardonnay. Uh, early ripening varieties because it's cooler there and you want to slow them down. Uh, Napa is uh, perhaps too much of a good thing. That's how okay. I would describe it. It's uh, uh, it's so sunny and the season is so long that the challenge in Napa is to make a balanced wine because the, your your sugars ripen before your flavors, your mm -hmm. phenolics uh, in, in that area. And we haven't figured out how to, to turn off a single a single aspect of a vine yet. You know, the sugar and everything keeps mm -hmm. going. So, yeah, yeah. So yeah. so you sit there, but here because of the latitude we're at, uh, we get a very different uh, ripening cycle because. Uh, at the longest day of the year, in the, you know, the summer solstice, we get about 75 more minutes sunshine than Napa, Napa Valley does. Oh, okay. So, so even though our season is shorter, the hours of photosynthesis end up being very similar mm, that, because okay. because we don't have fog in the morning and things like that yeah. at this altitude. So so we have a lot of photo, you know, really ideal uh, uh, summer for plants and photosynthesis, but then. 
At harvest, it reverses, and the days get much shorter. Mm. So we get these really short days that are still warm. So that slows sugar accumulation, maintains acidity, so you can let the you can let the grapes hang and develop full phenolic ripeness mm -hmm. without getting really high sugars. So oh, okay. that makes for high acid and moderate alcohol. Oh, okay. Well, that's that's interesting because I I have always noticed that. California wines do tend to be very high in alcohol. Mm -hmm. and, and, yeah. and actually this last weekend, I was out planting a vineyard uh, with a friend of mine that I met online, and he's planting it in Texas, um, mm -hmm. down in uh, the Davis Mountain AVA. And that, that was one thing he mentioned too, is he says, we get so much sun here and the season is so long that we mm -hmm. need to we need to see if we can, we don't want to reduce sunlight exactly, but we want to plant the grapes in such a way that it, it kind of limits the photosynthesis so that we're not getting these really, really early ripening and, and not a good developed sugar is not a very good balanced wine. And he said, that's a challenge in, in this area. So, and it seems like maybe parts of California actually have that problem too. And then when you start getting up a little higher into Oregon and Washington, you do get a little bit of a more, uh, like a, just a more balanced seasonal change. I mean, cause these, these grapes that, that you're planting, I guess they're all European varietals, right? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, California is, it, it, the, you know, in California in the fall, you'll get heat spikes. It can get really hot for long mm -hmm. periods of time. And because of the shorter days here, we don't get that. Mm -hmm. And and because of, we're, we're quite close to the ocean and the, the Rogue River cuts a gap through the Siskiyou Mountains here. So we get a bit, really big diurnal shift. So it can be 105 in the afternoon, and by 9 o'clock, it's 50. Oh, okay. And that's, that's really typical. So that, again, really promotes thicker skins and more acidity in the wine. I think that okay. kind of defines the Applegate Valley is this high acidity uh, with full flavors. Mm. And what are some challenges that you've had at the in the Applegate Valley versus like Napa or the Willamette Valley? Uh, well, uh, f compared to California, of course, our biggest threat here is frost in the spring mm. uh, during uh, bud break. Uh, but to tell you the truth, since there, obviously there seems to be climate change going yeah. on of some sort, uh, uh, we haven't really had frost issues for the last few years. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's a changing thing. Uh, okay. the, the springs have been warmer. And, uh, you know, but, the, you know, obviously in the combination of the altitude mm -hmm. and, and how far north we are, frost can be an issue. Okay. Uh, so that probably is our biggest threat. Uh, but other than that, it's a pretty ideal growing region mm. uh, because uh, it's, it's, it's warm in the summer but extremely dry. Okay. So it's so a very low humidity, so we have very low pressure from uh, powdery mildew and, and insects and that sort of thing. So I, when I brought, when we changed to, made the decision to move to biodynamics, the consultant I brought in, that was one of the first things he said. This is like the perfect place to, mm -hmm. to grow biodynamically and organically because it's just a naturally, that's uh, uh, a good climate for vines. Okay. Well, actually, right, that, that would have been a really great transition into biodynamic, but I did have one one thought, though, on the, the climate change thing is because one thing that Mason and I on, on this show have noticed is that, and I don't know if this is a trend or just an expansion of wine growing in general, but it does seem like more wineries are opening further north. Like there's a lot more opening up in like even like British Columbia, which yes. I wouldn't even really think about that. Do you think that that is – is as a result of, of climate change directly, or do you think that that is just people expanding or learning how to grow things in cooler climates? 
I think it's a little of both. Mm -hmm. I think there, there, that definitely people are looking for cooler sites uh, uh, with with a long term vision to what may or may not happen. Mm -hmm. And uh, also, I think there's a change. The consumer, I think, has changed too, where they're looking for uh, a fresher, lower alcohol wine. Okay, as part of their thing. So I think if you put the two together, it's a it's a strong uh, uh, incentive. Yeah. For wineries to to move forward, right? Yeah, yeah we, we've we've our, noticed that 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 there is there does seem to be a lot opening further north, and mm-hmm. like I wouldn't say like I'm a climate change denier or a climate change supporter one way or the other, but I do I am very interested in market forces, and when I see the market is moving north like that, that's very interesting to me, and mm-hmm. and I like to know like you know what is what is the reason for this? Is it because just like like you said, is it because the tastes have changed or? Is it just getting too hot down south to grow stuff and people right. want to move move up? Um, and I guess that's probably one challenge we'll have here in Texas as well mm-hmm. is if it keeps warming up, it's already uh, – today's actually 94 out oh, here. Oh, goodness. Yeah, <laughs> out here in Dallas. It's, it's, it's <laughs> okay. already real hot. Although where I was this week in Marfa, they, they don't usually get that much above 95 in the summer even. Um, but mm-hmm. let's go – let's transition into biodynamic wine because that's that's really – you know, you're the first expert I've I've met or talked to about this, and I get I get for, like even this weekend when I was talking to people about biodynamic, a lot of them don't really know what it is. They they know they've had biodynamic wines, they know that it's good wine, and but the the I guess the most concise explanation that I've gotten from other people who don't really know a lot about it is they say, well, it's kind of like organic on steroids, but adding in a little bit of voodoo. Well, yeah, I suppose uh, on the the surface, it seems uh, there's a little bit of voodoo there, but I think there's a little bit of voodoo in agriculture. Yeah. There's uh, very little we know about plants and soil. This is a a really uh, almost a new science that's developing now, the study of the microbiome of your soils. Uh, replacing so many of the chemicals that have been used with uh, more natural, uh, uh, you know, microbiological type treatments that even large commercial farms are looking to now. So there's this general change in agriculture from from chemicals which have been causing obvious problems uh, over the last decades and and, you, and 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 you can see those results in plants now and even so even big commercial uh, uh, producers are looking to change to a more natural integrated mm-hmm. uh, uh, system so you have to kind of go back in history a little bit for biodynamics is you know Rudolf Steiner of course was mm-hmm. the first one that really came up with the uh, the ideas, but he did this in a series of of uh, eight lectures that you know over a couple of weeks, and it, and and he was he existed at a time right after World War One, where uh, mil, you know it's in Germany and Austria, millions of people had just been killed, the economy and the culture was in total devastation, and and during this process, chemical farming had been introduced. Uh, uh, very dramatically, and a lot of people were, were 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 terrified by the changes that were happening. And and Steiner was a philosopher, so he came up with these lectures, actually at the request of a group of farmers, and and g- gave this outline. And much of what we call biodynamics today actually came after that, okay. with a group of scientists that begin to apply science to biodynamics and try to come up with reasons. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there's been so much, we've, we've learned so much in the last decades that that we have to take 
as we would with anything, you know, it's like medicine in the 1950s. You know, you wouldn't want a surgeon yeah. from 1950s to do your right, cancer right. operation today, even though he may have been the best surgeon in the world in 1950. So what's happening, I think, is a real uh, evolution in, in, in this taking what the concept was of biodynamics and understanding that there was a kernel of truth in everything. And now we're trying to apply science to each of these aspects because overall we've all seen biodynamics work yeah. in years. But the, the question is which parts work and which parts don't. Mm -hmm. And and there certainly are parts that do, certainly parts that don't. And and right now we're, we're working within the framework of biodynamics that it is while we try to dig in and find those parts. So the, the easiest way I can think of to describe biodynamics is basically you're taking organic agriculture and then applying a, a very proactive uh, uh, probiotic approach mm -hmm. to your vineyard. So the, 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 the biggest part of biodynamics is a very... Uh, uh, serious composting program okay so so you know we're here we have a 100 acre farm we're producing 250 tons of, of biodynamic compost every year that we're applying back in the soils and the goal of that and also the famous uh, preparation 500 which everybody sees because it makes great pictures with right. horns and all that you know, yeah 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 it is is the idea is is to rebuild the fungi and the bacteria the whole microbiome of your soils, ah, that, and, and, and so because you know, I, people don't people tend to think of plants that they stick their roots down, and they just drink up all this nutrition. That's not how it works. There's fungi and bacteria around the roots that actually transform uh, the minerals and nutrition that's available in the soil into a uh, something that the the vine can then take in and use. That, that's interesting because oh. this weekend when when I was talking to the the vintner who uh, I was helping out, he was talking about a very similar thing. As he said, one of the reasons he doesn't he wants to either use pesticides very very sparingly or not use them at all, which is one of the reasons he chose the site he chose, um, is because he said a, a, a big problem in wine right now is they use all these pesticides and stuff, mm -hmm. and it and it kills all the the bugs in the soil, all the bacteria yes. and and. Yeah. Uh, the nitrifying mm -hmm. bacteria and all that sort of stuff. And then they are forced to then use fertilizers to get that nitrogen and other types of things back into the soil. And he says it just doesn't, it's not, it's not a living wine anymore. It's now, it's just this right. product that people bottle and sell on mass. He wants it to be, to really express the terroir of his location. It's got to express the, the bugs that live in the, in the soil. Right, right. So exactly, you know, it, it's kind of this uh, multi-layered thing that people have been doing in agriculture, you know. So when you apply a pesticide, you also kill all the good bugs. Yeah. And so that, and the bad bugs are much better at then building their population up than the good bugs are. And so you end up with a lot more bad bugs. And the same thing happens in the soil. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're, if you're putting Roundup down to kill weeds and things like that, you're killing also the fungi and the bacteria your soil. Mm -hmm. and, and then if you layer on top of that uh, over-irrigation and, and nitrogen fertilizers, you really break down the, the, the plant's ability to feed itself. Mm. You know, you really turn it into it like a little drug addict, you know, yeah. it, it loses its ability to, to, to generate its own food. So it, ne it needs to rely on these fixes, these shots 
of nitrogen and water to survive. And uh, uh, so that makes for a very weak plant. And a weak plant then is more susceptible to viruses and other vine diseases. Um, so mm-hmm. so it, it, you get into this terrible circle of, uh, of an ongoing weakening of the plants and then having to apply more chemicals. Hmm. Okay. So when you guys decided – now you're at, at Troon Vineyard now. Mm-hmm. Um, was Troon Vineyard always a biodynamic vineyard or did no, you – No, no. No, it was conventionally farmed, and the soils were really in bad shape. Okay, but it's a beautiful site. I mean, it's really an ideal site. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, ideal exposure, a perfect roll to the southwest, granite soils. So it has great potential. That's why I came here. Okay, but but it had been conventionally farmed, and uh, I want. That's why I leapt into biodynamics right away because I knew that this was the most regenerative type of uh, practice mm-hmm. to 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 use to bring these soils back as quickly as possible. How long did it take you guys to revive the site and get get sort of a living soil going again? I would say it takes about 3 years. Oh wow. You know, okay. I think you notice you notice uh uh right away even in the first year you'll notice changes. Mm-hmm. But by the third year you really are seeing dramatic changes. Okay. I'd say I'd say though for something that's been commercially farmed you're looking at a decade oh, to, wow. uh, to really bring it back 100%. Mhm. But uh, uh, you see improvement almost immediately. And did you have to pull any of the vines out, or were, or did those same yeah. vines? Oh, you did. Okay. Yeah, yeah, because uh, yeah, because because they had been weakened by the farming practices uh-huh. that were past. They had various uh, trunk diseases or viruses. Oh, okay. So, so you have to you have to look at, and also they weren't planted as well as they could have. Okay. Been. So and the soil prepares. So you have to look at a vine, and I'm trying to keep them all alive as long as I can. But some of them were just too far gone. Okay. Okay. So that so that that was that was probably a lot of work that you guys had to go in there and and select out which ones you were pulling out and putting in new ones. Yeah. Yeah. I tended to do it not by block. You know, you mm-hmm. said you have to say, okay, this block is just gone, and, okay. and it, maybe 25 percent of the vines were fine, but then it doesn't become. Viable. You have to kind of go in and say, okay, I'm going to take this block out, properly prepare the soils, uh, which you know. So that you know, we rip it down to three feet, and then uh, we're adding five tons of comp- biodynamic compost per acre before planting. Wow. Okay. Planting in a certain way. So you're really trying to reestablish the soil, mm-hmm. and and the best way to do that is when there's no plants in it, because then right. you can really work it. Right. That makes sense. Now, when you when they hired you at, at Troon Vineyard, did did they select you specifically because you were interested in biodynamic wine or did you bring that idea to them? I brought the idea. That was my okay. solution. Yeah. So so they were already they, were they experiencing problems and they just needed somebody to help out or Yeah, yeah. Okay. It was a it was a transition of ownership. Okay. Uh, so uh they were looking for new solutions. Okay. Well that makes that makes a lot of sense. So in the in the biodynamic process itself, once you've reestablished this soil and your vines are growing healthy again, from what from what I understand there's like certain days that you do certain things is is that something that they still do, or is that just something that is left over from uh, when they when it was originally like there's vine days and like certain, yeah. and well, watering days? Multiple, and... Yeah, there's kind of multiple ways to look at that. Uh-huh. Uh, first of all, you have to look at it on a practical level. Uh-huh. If you're doing a home garden, it's really easy to follow. Yeah, but but if you're farming a hundred acres, mm-hmm. if you only limited it to flower days, you know, and leaf days, you would never be able to get your work done. Right. So you have to. 
our goal is to try to follow that. Mm -hmm. But I would say on a more on a broader range, what we try to do is really try to follow the general range of an ascending and descending moon. Okay. Because I mean, just like you see with with uh, uh, tides in the ocean, uh -huh. there are certain fluctuations that happen, and in the and it, it probably doesn't make those kind of decisions. Don't make a uh, the if you're just trying to make good wine, mm -hmm. they probably don't make any difference. But if you're trying to make something really, really special, what you're trying to do is to take advantage of every little opportunity to improve it, no matter how small it may be. Right. So in trying to follow the calendar, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to, to get that extra little margin of quality. Yeah. But it's not going to decide one way or another uh, the overall quality of what we do. Mm. And, and you see that your customers really appreciate that, that they're seeking out biodynamic wine in particular? Uh, a lot are, a lot okay. are. I mean, there's certainly a lot of people that are in general seeking uh, uh, foods that are not treated with chemicals. Right. Uh, and there, there is, you know, a, a, a community of wine aficionados that mm -hmm. really do look towards biodynamic wines. And I think it's because uh, several reasons. First of all, of course, the obvious one is, is, is there you don't have, you know, there's no chemicals, it's all natural in the winemaking. But also I, I, I see a, 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 a philosophy of winemaking in, among biodynamic winemakers that emphasizes uh, uh, freshness and purity of place. Mm -hmm. And so people that are, I think, seeking unique experiences uh, and and wines that have a natural freshness to them uh -huh. are seeking out biodynamic wines. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. And do you have you noticed? I mean, you've you've been in the industry for a while. Have you noticed that this is an expanding trend that uh, more uh, more people are becoming more interested in it? Uh, dramatic. I, I mean, there's there's actually a whole niche market that's developed there's distributors now in very in most markets that specialize in natural wines okay you know, and, and 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 ranges of wine shops and wine bars and restaurants that are actively seeking out these wines mm -hmm. you know in the, in the scope of the wine industry it's a very small percentage right but for small wineries like us and the other biodynamic wineries i think there's more than enough to uh to accomplish that Okay. Um, airplane okay. noise. Okay. I, I shut no the window. <laughs> it's, it's no, pro no problem at all. No it's problem. a farm. It's a farm. What can yeah, I say? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, it, it, it makes it authentic. Yeah, uh, sure. There you go. Well, you know, one thing that you mentioned on there was that more people are seeking out natural wines, and that was. You know, I, I'm I'm getting ex exposed to a lot more of these conversations now that I've been, you know, hanging out with people who actually are in the know a little bit about a wine. And one of the big conversations that this last weekend that I was listening to was they were talking about uh, natural wine versus organic wine versus biodynamic wine. And they, the one of the guys that I was hanging out with, he's a he's a wine seller, and he was saying that we're getting this a lot where people are presenting us wines that are quote unquote natural, but there's no definition for that. Whereas when they 
get a biodynamic wine, they know exactly what it is. And when they get an organic certified type wine, they know exactly what that is. Have, have you had any experience with this where people are are trying to market this as a natural, but there's no mm-hmm. clear definition for that? And do you see that, that you have an advantage with biodynamic wine, whereas there is a clear practice and a clear um, a clear procedure that you follow to make your wine biodynamic? Yes, I think that that's really important. The, the natural wine name has been kind of bastardized, you know, because uh-huh. you've got people that will buy grapes that have every chemical in the world applied to them. Mm-hmm. And then just because they don't use sulfur in, in making the wine, they call them natural wines. Okay. And, and to me, that's just not true, you know. Yeah. Uh, a, a, a natural wine, to me, implies, should apply the farming almost more than the winemaking. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I agree with you 100% that a certified biodynamic or a certified organic wine is on a different level okay. than somebody that just says natural, which, of course, doesn't really mean anything. Yeah, that and that that was kind of the that was sort of the consensus with everybody there as they were saying, well, we yeah. don't we don't really know what that means. Now, one thing that you touched on there was in the winemaking practice that they were talking about to me was that if you are making the wine in the correct way, you really don't have to add sulfur because it'll preserve itself based on the profile of the grapes. Mm-hmm. In, in biodynamic, what what is the procedure once you've harvested and you're producing the wine? What are the things that you do so that you don't have to add additives to the wine to make it so that it'll preserve, it'll have a shelf life, and it'll be available for people for several years? Well, the most important thing mm-hmm. to all of this, and not having to add anything in the cellar or, or do any sort of unusual uh, artificial technique in the cellar, uh-huh. is, is healthy fruit. Okay. Uh, this is the... the most of the nasty things people hear about that people do in winemaking are because the fruit was less than healthy. Mm, okay. And then they have to take some sort of uh, 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 action and correct that problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we're trying to do with biodynamics is to create a vine that is so healthy that it produces healthy fruit mm-hmm. so that we don't have to do those things. Okay. So, so that's, I guess that's what they were kind of alluding to when when I was listening is that if you have the healthy grape or a grape that is produced correctly, you don't have to add all these things because the the profile of the grape itself will have the correct amounts of everything to make a wine that has a shelf life and, Mm -hmm. and tastes amazing for however long it takes for you to drink it. And I don't think there's anything wrong with adding a very uh, low uh, amount of sulfur before Uh bottling. Just a little, you know. We, we'll do that. We add, you know, it's maybe uh, 20 to 30 parts per million uh-huh. uh, uh, that we add just for bottling. Just as, It's just a stabilizer in the bottle. It actually helps the wine age better. Okay. Uh, and, uh, I mean, it's all free sulfur, so the amount of it is, I mean, it's it's, it's extremely low. Right. Uh, and, uh, for instance, in, in, uh, to get a biodynamic certification, the maximum level is 100 parts per million, and we're... At, at about 30. Okay. Wow. That's very low. But, yeah. and, and the- so just enough to give it a, 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 a good stabilizing effect to the wine in the bottle. Well, and the, and the purpose for the sulfur is, is just to basically bond with any of the free radicals or whatever they're floating around in yeah, the wine yeah. that could damage other yeah. parts of it. Yeah. It's, a, it's just, just chemistry. <laughs> okay. That makes, that makes total sense. That makes yeah. total sense yeah. to me. Now, yeah. sort of along those same lines, um, 
you know, one thing, and I don't, I don't know the process of winemaking very well, but uh, you, you don't ever add any yeast. It's all natural fermentation, right? That's correct. Yes, okay. that's correct. So then, well, so what, what goes into our fermenters is grapes. That's okay, it. and so this, so whatever is on the skins of the grapes or in the fruit, once you crush it and put it into the fermenter. That's that's what's going to impart that flavor is Correct. is from these. So I know a little bit about beer brewing, and mm-hmm. and I know from beer brewing that different yeasts that you select can impart different flavors to it. Mm-hmm. Where and now that I'm getting a lot more into wine and understanding a lot more about wine, I, I understand that the yeast is probably going to play a much stronger role in terroir because you're going to have different species of yeast depending on where you are. Mm-hmm. Yes, I mean in fact the the native yeasts are part of terroir. Okay. You know that they're part of the part of the natural environment that that gives your wine the flavor that it has. Mm-hmm. So so what, what what you have basically happened there's many types of yeasts, okay? And 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 so in a native fermentation during the early part of of fermentation you you have many yeasts that are at work. Mm-hmm. Uh, but most of those strains can't survive more than four or five percent alcohol, which is obviously a big difference between right. beer. Beer. So then there's the Saccharomyces strain mm-hmm. that will that in the beginning of fermentation doesn't doesn't do much, but then it's a very aggressive yeast and eventually takes over the fermentation and then and then takes it to dryness. You know that's what mm-hmm. it's a strong yeast, so it finishes. But in that early part, that little those those first days where you have all those different yeasts mm-hmm. work, uh, they each are adding some nuance, some flavor, some texture, and 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 that is part of your site. Okay, if that's what you're trying to express. And then when the Saccharomyces comes in, they're just doing the uh, you know the general labor. They're just right. finishing it up. You know. Okay, that makes sense. That that yeah. makes a lot of sense. So so if you. The typical way for most people, uh, you know, that are doing adding yeast is when the grapes come in, they'll press it and add sulfur right away and kill off all the native yeast. Oh, okay. And, and then just add Saccharomyces, and mm-hmm. then it, which just, you know, goes through and finishes uh, uh, very efficiently, but it doesn't add these extra nuances. Right, right. To the wine. The trick is, of course, a lot of the, those native yeast, if they were to do the uh, entire fermentation, they would add eventually add flavors you don't want. Okay. So it's that it's that getting that right combination. And you know, the yeast they make alcohol as a way to um, uh, fend off competing bacteria and yeast mm-hmm. for the sugar. Now obviously that's a not a it's a good short term strategy, but not a very good long term strategy because right. they end up killing themselves. <laughs> but Yeah, yeah, yeah. But 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 it's that getting that balance and allowing that that first few days for the, the 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 wide variety of yeast to have their give their imprint mm-hmm. and then letting Saccharomyces take over and finish. From ha, have you noticed any any unique characteristics of the yeast that are are local to Applegate that you're getting in your wines? Yes, yes. I mean, it really, there's everybody. It's every every region because the yeasts are local to the area mm-hmm. will add their own little nuance and textures to us. I, I know for me there, it adds a texture, a roundness to the mid palate. Okay. And, and an almost floral aromatic. Oh, okay. That's, that's, that sounds really good. I might, I might try I don't know if you guys ship to Texas, but I do go to Oregon. We're working on it. We're working on it. We do ship to Texas and we're working on distribution there. Sure. Okay. Well, actually I, I do go through Oregon 
uh, once a year. So maybe next oh, year, yeah. I, I, maybe this year, actually probably in August, I'll uh, try to stop by and, and try you to have s- come visit. I you will. Yeah, visit. that would be really, really fun. Um, uh, kind of like on, on the same, the same note as, uh, just the, the process of wake, making wine. Uh, I noticed that on, on the Troon Vineyard site, you guys make a lot of different wines. What is your favorite to make? And, or actually, I'm sure you like making a lot of them, but do you have a favorite of what you're producing? And do you see, notice from year to year since you're doing, you know, when you're a large winemaker, kind of what you're going for is consistency. But when you're a smaller winemaker and using this biodynamic practice, you're looking to express the terroir, which does change from year to year. So have mm-hmm. you noticed a, a big difference between your vintages and, uh, also, what is your favorite so far? And have you been learning every year? Do you learn something new and are, do you adjust your practices a little bit? Every year you do learn something new and, and it's a, it's a unique aspect to agriculture and viticulture is that, you know, I always get frustrated. I see these computer companies, they do iteration after iteration. Something goes wrong. They still go, you know, it's 14.12, you know, it's yeah. the next day it's 14.13. It fixes. We get one, one, one iteration a year. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it's a, it's a much slower learning process. It takes a lot more thought and, and research. Because when you plant a vineyard, you're, you know, it, it's five years, five, six years before you know if you were right or wrong, if you're discussing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we've gone through this process. We brought in uh, Vineyard Soil Technologies, uh, a group of PhDs down uh-huh. in Napa, and we, we, we dug 75 soils, five foot deep soil pits, did complete soil analysis on every aspect of the site. Uh, we're working with a company called Wine SEQ out of uh, San Francisco in Spain. Mm-hmm. They're genetic sequencing. So you oh, know, cool. we dug down into every aspect of our soil, what's on the grapes, what's in the fermenters, and then have been using all this data to, to select what we feel are the ideal varieties for this site. Mm-hmm. So that's the process we're in. And I have always associated the site with uh, southern France, particularly Languedoc. Okay. Uh, and so we're going in that direction as we replant and redevelop. So I'm putting in 10 new acres this spring. Uh, it's all based on the southern French varieties. So Syrah, Morvedra, Grenache, uh-huh. Marsan, Roussin, okay. uh, and even Tanat and oh, things like okay. that. So oh. that's what we do. Uh, Tanat has been particularly interesting on this site because on a granite soil, you you get a naturally softer, silkier tannin. Mm-hmm. And of course, Tanat is famous for having very aggressive tannins. Yeah. And so we are able to, to naturally, without any effort on our part, moderate those tannins and make a more approachable style of Tanat. Uh, so that's been really fascinating. So it's that. But I think that what's really interesting to me in the long run here is developing blends of those varieties. Again, very yeah. much like see in southern France, you know, like GSMs and Marvedra mm-hmm. and and and, uh, and Grenache and then Marsan, Roussan, these type of things. I think these are going to be the most interesting wines in the long run. Mm. Okay, that I mean, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I've actually, and I don't know if this is an American thing or just a me thing. But one of the things that when Mason and I first started out doing this show is that we were really only wanted single varietal wines. Mm-hmm. And then, then I started getting exposed more to blends and it's so interesting what people can do by blending them and making adjustments to how much of one or the other grape is in it or just, uh, you know, from this site, putting it with this 
with this other grape from this other site and you come out with these really interesting wines that are, you know, a much more complete palette than just single varietal Cabernet Sauvignon, which can be very, very good. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. uh, but just it has a, it has a different, it's, it's like almost like painting a picture you know, you can paint it with one color right. and it's, and it might be nice and it might be a pretty color, but if you're painting, painting it with multiple colors, you, then you end up getting a scenery and, and just something a little more interesting. And, right. and I've, I've noticed that a lot lately since we've been trying more wines. Like I've, I've, start, I've started really liking some of the, some of the Spanish, uh, blends and some of the, some of the French blends mm-hmm. that we, and, and it oh, seems, yeah. seems to be much more of a European, a European thing to blend it. And then in America, they do these single varietals. Right. And right. so I don't know if well, that, you know, if you think about it, mm-hmm. I mean, if you, if you get outside of uh, Barolo and Burgundy, mm-hmm. almost every place else are blends. Yeah, yeah. France, you mm-hmm. know, so and and Italy, right? And and also another thing we're really working to do is whenever possible, we prefer to do uh, co-ferments instead of uh, blends. Oh, okay. Because when you co-ferment mm-hmm. the varieties, you actually slightly change the chemistry in the fermenter, and it's like you end up with a. I always describe it as like we created a new variety. It oh. Has, it's just because. Uh, often you taste blends, you know, and, and, and one month it kind of tastes like the Cabernet and two months later you taste it and the Merlot is mm-hmm. kind of, but when you do a co-ferment, it never, it doesn't do that. It totally integrates and becomes this new expression. And that a so, co-ferment is when you, when you're picking both types of grapes and then you crush them together and ferment them yep, together. Yep. Okay. Yes, that's, exactly. that, that's super interesting. I, I don't, yeah. I don't, do they normally label that as a co-ferment? Cause I don't, I don't, uh, I don't know. Do. That ever... I mean, it's certainly something you would see a lot in Southern France again okay uh, uh, it's a very typical way to do it and in the old days you know old you know you go back a couple hundred years the growers in those days would plant multiple varieties in their vineyard as kind of a agricultural insurance policy you know because oh, okay. some, some varieties would age would would ripen better in, in various years in various conditions so if you had a nice mix you would get a crop every year and you just ferment them all together that was kind of the origin of a lot of winemaking. Even yeah. in California, the early days in the 1800s yeah. and things like that, that's what they did. No, that, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Like if you, you know, you don't want to put all your eggs in one basket, so to exactly. speak. Exactly. You know? That was exactly, you know, they were, they were just farmers. They were just yeah. <laughs> looking to, to make sure they got a crop. Yeah. I mean, it to- makes total sense. Uh, let's pivot real quick to some business, uh, the business side of this, because that I noticed that that's also, uh, something you have a lot of experience in and something that I'm very interested in is the, is the business side of wine. Um, you know, when, when you're making all of these biodynamic wines, we touched on it a little bit earlier. Do you notice that any particular varietal or blend or co-ferment that you're doing out of Troon Vineyards sells better or is it, is it just people are just interested so they buy everything and you, and you sell out of everything or how, how, how does business work? With, with I guess a, it's hard for me to say because we don't make any of the the big name varieties. You know, yeah. we're not making any Cabernet Sauvignon or Merlot uh-huh. or Pinot Noir or Chardonnay. Right. I mean, we're specialized in these Southern French varieties, so mm-hmm. we, you know, we're doing Tanat and and Vermentino and mm-hmm. Marsan and this kind of thing. So it's, I mean, we're, we we are really a niche type product. And I understand that, mm-hmm. and but fortunately, there's there's enough people out there looking for interesting wines that are outside of the kind of commercial blandness mm-hmm. <laughs> that you see yeah. in the market, you know, where all the wines kind of taste the same. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, what I always say, you know, I make five, make five thousand cases of wine. There's three hundred million Americans, so I can't find <laughs> that. Yeah, I'm doing my job. Right, <laughs> <laughs> that, that makes total sense. What What about now? You you label your wines as biodynamic, and that is a certification uh, process that yes. is private, or is that something that? Uh, the government has to regulate for you because I know that the government has to approve your label. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, yeah, so the the, the um, organic uh, certifications are, have to go through the NOP, the National Standards, okay. to to be qualified. But uh, biodynamic is certified by Demeter, mm-hmm. uh, uh, which is an international organization, but we are certified by Demeter USA, the American uh, branch. Okay, who has full range of uh obviously we have to go through extensive uh, reporting and uh inspections and things like that Mm -hmm. to to maintain our certification so in the case of uh organics you are uh you certified through a government standard okay case of biodynamics we are are certified through the demeter international standard Mm -hmm. and the the demeter biodynamic trademark is trademarked right you can't you can't use it unless you're certified. So they're they're slightly different in that regard. Mm-hmm. But to 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 uh, uh, qualify for a biodynamic certification, the first step is to be organically certified. Oh, really? Okay. So it, that's like the, that's like the the base of it. That's like step one is you have to be organic. And that that involves its own series of inspections and that sort of stuff. Right. Exactly. Okay. Mm-hmm. And is this is this something that is it's standard across all of the states or Yes. Oh, it yes. is. Okay. Oh, that's interesting. I, I didn't. I wasn't really sure how the organic process. You know, I see it on, in the stores and stuff like that, and I'm yes. like, hmm, mm-hmm. I'm not sure what they what they do for this organic. Yeah, there's USDA organic, uh-huh. and then there's there's they they uh, um, certify um, various agencies like uh, CCOF or Oregon Tilth to do the certifications. Mm. Okay. And then and then and then you get it. But they they follow the government standard. Right. Do they do they have to, uh is that at your own expense obviously? Is Oh, you you bet. And is it, is it pretty expensive? <laughs> uh well, it's yeah, it's not cheap, but uh 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 I mean, they do a lot of work. I mean, right. you know, people coming out actually doing inspections are very serious about their work. Right. Demeter in particular has a very stringent, you know, uh, inspection process. So I'm sure that the what we pay them, they're not getting rich on. I'll tell you that. Well, yeah, I mean, that's not, that's not exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's yeah. not exactly yeah. what I meant. I just yeah. was curious, like from a business standpoint, how much yeah. of how much does that impact your business that you have to take these things into account? Well, as as a as a compared to the cost of actually doing it, it's pretty insignificant. Okay. <laughs> you know, right? That's not right. that's not 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 any kind of uh, burden. Okay. All right. Well, I, I just was my cur- I was just curious yeah. about that in general. Is uh, like what like what costs were involved and that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Now, as as far as the the label itself goes, so you get a trademark symbol from the biodynamic organization, and yes. I guess you get a USD. You're able to also use the USA USDA organic symbol as well if you choose to. Yes, that is available if you choose to. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, but then, do you have to submit your labels now? Are these on the labels, or is this an addition to the label? And do you have to submit that as well to the government to get approved? Uh, no, no. Once you have your certification, uh, you just include uh, include it. You know, it's printed on your label that you submit. Okay to the uh, TTB and uh, uh, that's as long as it's the recognized mm-hmm. uh, symbol you're fine 
Okay. All right. And and at at uh, Troon Vineyards, do you guys have like a tasting area and stuff? Because I noticed that on your yes. blog, you say that you're really also into the experience of food. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had pretty good experience this last weekend again, where I went down to a vineyard here in Texas, and one of the cool things that they did was they paired specific food with specific wine. So you had this wine tasting that they kind of paired that. Do you guys try to do something similar to that? Do you offer food at at your tasting room, or is there some sort of uh, regulation that doesn't allow you to do that, or how, how does that work? What we do is uh, we work with uh, local Oregon uh, producers okay. that are making cheeses and charcuterie uh, organically, mm-hmm. and then uh, so then we offer a selection of those to taste with the wine. Oh, well, that's that's pretty cool. I, I definitely need to, I need to stop by. Yeah, it's all, all, <laughs> try all local local things, you know. Yeah. So. That's 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 some, my wife yeah. and I. That's one of our favorite things. Although she doesn't drink wine, but one of our favorite things is to is to get like interesting cured meats and interesting cheeses and and mm-hmm. pickled items and stuff like that. That's what you know. We love those types of things. Well, we're in the process of uh, planting uh, uh, two hundred. Uh, uh, heritage clone apple trees right now. We'll be making our own ciders. So oh, wow. Sure yeah. Oh, that'll be really cool, actually. And, and these, the ciders you're going to do in the biodynamic fashion as yes. well? Wow, that's, yes. that's I mean, really that's cool. Part of biodynamics is you're, you're not to be a monoculture. Uh-huh. So, uh, so we're, uh, we're planting apples. We're putting apiaries in. We're wow. honey. Uh, we'll have a sheep flock in here next year. So we have livestock on the area. You know, for the the uh, be in the vineyard in the winters, mm-hmm. and uh, we're doing a development of a block of uh, uh, heritage uh, Oregon seed buckwheat. Wow! Okay. Propagate the seed, and then we'll have a two acre vegetable garden. That is that's, that's really impressive. Yeah, that's going to be really really cool. Uh, now, with the when you're planting these, is it mixed in with the vineyards, or is it separate no, no, sections? No, they're separate blocks. Oh, okay. It's, okay. All, it's all on the hundred acre property here. Got it. But, okay. Uh, but there are, I mean, for farming purposes, you uh-huh. know, for tractors and stuff like yeah. that, you keep them separated. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Um, before I let you go, because I don't want to occupy too much of your time, uh, can you tell me one thing that you are most excited about that's going on at Troon Vineyards, or actually more than one thing if you want? Uh, that's going on at Trin Vineyards in the next year or so. Well, I mean, the final. I mean, we're we're getting our full biodynamic uh, uh, certifications now after after a three year process. You know, mm-hmm. we've been our biodynamic in conversion certification okay. for a while. So, getting the final conversion is 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 uh, it gives you a real sense of accomplishment. You know, that yeah. you, you've done this project and got it there. And uh, the planting of the new varieties, I mean, the, the development of the vineyard, new vineyard blocks, mm-hmm. is is really exciting because we've uh, we've sought out some very unique clones that of, of these varieties that are tied to their regions in France. Mm. So so very direct lineage to the types of wines that have inspired us. So so putting all those together, you know, that it's just I feel like we're just uh, stepping off into a very bright future. Hmm. You know what? That that if, if I can, I, I want. I'd like to ask you one more question about those clones, if that's okay. Hmm? Um, when you are ordering those, because they're unique clones that are, are a little less common, do you have to get those from Europe? And if you, or do they grow them here in the states? They have to grow them here. They have to. They have to go through a, a quarantine process. Oh, okay. So they're they're brought in. You know, like uh, UC Davis and mm-hmm. Cornell have programs, and they bring them in. They certify them. 
and then they're propagated by nurseries. Okay. Who then check because you don't want to spread diseases and right, things like right. that. Well, what so it, we're working with, they're called ONTAV, E-N-T-A-V clones okay. uh, predominantly, which is are certified particular clones by the French government oh. to specific areas. Okay. And do when when they do that, are they putting those clones on the American rootstock or are you, are these? Uh, we, we will be. A lot of our vines now are unrooted, but mm-hmm. uh, being this close to California where yeah. they have a lot of phylloxera right. and traffic and so forth, we feel at this point that uh, it's in our interest to, to, to graft them because okay. we're really, I mean, that's another aspect of biodynamics is I hope these vineyards will be here for 50 or 60 years. Yeah. We plant them. I, you know, there's a, you have to have a sense of uh, when you're planting the vineyard, you're also doing it for the next generation. Yeah. Well, and that's, you must be very proud of that too, because now that you've got this legacy for, that'll have old vines going on into, you know, 2050 plus you know, all these right, years, right. that's a, that's right. a pretty good legacy. That's a pretty cool legacy, yeah, especially since you were in the ground. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's an interesting thing here that, that people that I've never met will, will make wines out of them that I'll never get to taste. But, but <laughs> yeah. it's just, it's just, uh, that, that, that there's that continuum. Yeah. Uh, uh, I think that's very much to the heart of uh, biodynamic agriculture. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, that might kind of go back into the whole biodynamic voodoo part of it is that uh, uh, part of this is that you're going to be a part of the terroir of Troon Vineyards for as long as Troon Vineyards exists because of, uh, of I, the I, impact that you've done on it. I hope so. That would yeah. be my, <laughs> my, my sincere hope. Okay. Well, that, <laughs> that is great. And I don't, I don't, I don't, I want to be respectful of your time. So I will let you go. But do you have anything that you would like to plug? I know that you're on Twitter, uh, at Craig Camp on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And also I've been reading your blog, which I think is a really great blog. It's got a lot of really interesting information and a lot of great information on biodynamic growing. It's, uh, winecampblog.com. Uh, do you have anything else that you would like to direct our listeners to? Well, I just Southern Oregon in particular, uh, the Applegate Valley. This is to come here is into an emerging wine region in the United States is is really exciting. This is you know a lot of people say it reminds them of Sonoma thirty or forty years ago. Wow! And there's there's an energy here, and, and personally, I think it's one of the the mo- perhaps the most beautiful wine growing region in the United States. And uh, uh, I just really encourage people to come here. Uh, it's not there's not just wine here, you know. Where there's Crater Lake, there's the Shakespeare Festival in Ashland, the Brit Music Festival, mm-hmm. uh, incredible trout fishing and uh, and whitewater rafting. And if you're into the outdoor lifestyle, you'll love Southern Oregon. So come visit us in Southern Oregon. Yeah, I can I can attest to both the Shakespeare Festival and Crater Lake. They're both be- beautiful and well. The Shakespeare Festival is a lot of fun, and Crater Lake is is very, very beautiful. It's a great yes. place to go camping. So for our listeners, if you have not been to that part of Oregon, I encourage you to go because that's one of one of my many favorite places in the United States is Southern Oregon because it's, it's a really great place. Uh, well, thank you very much, Craig, for coming on the show. Um, thank you. It was I, a great pleasure uh, talking with you. Yeah, and I will probably see you the next time I'm in Oregon. Cause, and I, will, I, I guarantee it's much more fun to, uh, <laughs> to see us than to just talk to us. Yeah, well, you know what? I, I'll, I'll bring my recording equipment too. Maybe we can do a, another episode when I'm actually there in person and try some of your wines. I'd love it. Oh, that'd be great. All right. Well, thank you very much. Thank uh, you. Have a good day. Right, bye. All right, everybody. That was Craig Camp from Troon Vineyards. What a wealth of knowledge. 
Uh, I really enjoyed talking to him, and I hope that you enjoyed listening to him. I'm going to be trying to do a lot more interviews like this with winemakers and people who are or vintners, people who are, are growing grapes, making wine, and engaged in the alcohol industry in general. Um, one thing I want to remind everybody about is Childerberg. It's coming up soon, so go to childerberg.com and sign up for the newsletter. You can also follow us at Childerberg on Twitter. Uh, but most importantly for this show, go to tastinganarchy.com. You can email us at tastinganarchy, on, uh, tastinganarchy at gmail.com. You can also follow us at tastinganarchy on Twitter. And I believe that is all of the plugs that I have for this week. I really, really appreciated Craig Camp coming on. I thought that was a really awesome interview. Um, check out his blog. Check out his website. That is it. I ha- That's all I have for today. Thank you for tuning in. Stay free. Once a year, the world's power brokers meet in secret at a heavily secured facility and discuss the fate of regular people like you. This meeting is known as the Bilderberg. But you don't have to worry about that because you're going to Childeberg. Childeberg is the premier gathering of free folk in Texas, held at the beautiful Black Rock Park on the banks of refreshing Buchanan Lake in Iano County. Childeberg 2019, June 8th and 9th. Chill in the lake. Make new friends with liberty lovers like you. Enjoy camping in the great outdoors. Hop in the wine van and visit the local wineries. Participate in podcasting magic and much, much more. Email us at tastinganarchy at gmail.com or reach out to us at Childeberg on Twitter for additional details. Childeberg 2019, June 8th and 9th. I'll see you there.